1: Paul, we are back. This is a this is an action-packed episode on acute kidney injury with the great Dr. Joel Toff, at, or or at Kidney Boy, as as he is belovedly known. So, Paul, before we tell them a little bit more about Dr. Toff in this episode, can you tell them what do we do on this show? Why do we do this, Paul? Why are we still doing this? <laughs>
0: I just, I think, deeply entrenched masochism, and I feel like I'm punishing myself for something I can't quite define. For me, I I can't judge your motives, Matt. You'll have to tell us. Um, But we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And as you mentioned, we have the great Dr. Joel Topf with us. And I, I think, and you'll talk about it, this is maybe the first episode I spent with Dr. Topf where I did not leave um, filled quaking with terror. Like I felt, I, we left it a little bit on a hopeful note, I think. But you'll you'll tell us more.
1: Paul, our our fantastic guest, the great Dr. Joel Toff. He is known around Cashlack for many things, and on Twitter as at kidney underscore boy, where he runs Neff JC along with a bunch of his friends. He's part of the Freely Filtered podcast. He he is one of the co creators of Neff Madness, which we have of course featured on several Curbsider shows. He helps with the Nephrology Social Media Collective, which is an internship for those of you nephrology nerds out there interested in such things. And of course, his blog, Precious Bodily Fluids, where he is known as the Salt Whisperer, is also fantastic. He's won very prestigious awards from the ASN, including the Robert Narens Award for his innovations in teaching. So if you haven't met Dr. Toff, you are in for a real treat as we discuss AKI and he's going to simplify this for you and make you feel hopeful, as Paul said, and and tell you that 95% of the time, you will know what to do right away. And if you don't, then you you just console Kidney Boy. Joel, you're back for, it's got to be like the 50th time or something now. <laughs> uh, and uh, the audience keeps still, when we get praise for the show, they're always like, you guys have a great show. I especially love that Kidney Boy.
0: Yep.
2: To a person, <laughs> I am honored to be here. It's really a lot
1: my, of fun. My kids even know who you are. They're like, <laughs> they're like, you, are you still friends with that Batman sounding guy? And I'm like, yeah, I still. He's still on the show still.
2: <laughs>
0: so we're not to Uncle Joel point yet, but I feel like. It's-
2: <laughs> <laughs> I would much prefer to look like Batman than to sound <laughs> like Batman.
0: Isn't there? Aren't there some later comics
1: where Batman's, uh, you know, kind of banged up and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no no offense, Joel. He's yeah, yeah. <laughs> still a badass though. <laughs> he is still a badass, yeah. I think that's the one where he takes out Superman actually is uh, okay, but we're we're diverging from the topic. Joel, can you give the audience a one liner about yourself? Tell them a hobby outside of medicine and and then we'll we'll get on.
2: So I'm a fifty year old white male who is increasingly recognizing the privilege of that I was born into. I'm a nephrologist who enjoys adopting new technology to the job of medical education. I just celebrated 20 years of marriage to a great woman. And I'm a parent of twins who may or may not be attending college in the fall as the uh, COVID epidemic rages across the land.
1: You know, Joel, last time we talked, I think the college thing was stressing you out to begin with. And I think that was just visiting schools and planning for a normal college admission process. I I can't imagine it's gotten better.
2: (laughs) My kids did great in the college lottery uh, and they got into excellent schools, and I just hope they get to go to those schools. It really, it would be a huge disappointment uh, given how much energy and uh, thought and time, uh, that the, and attention that they put into getting into these schools.
1: I think no, I I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen when we when we put all these people inside buildings in close quarters and for extended periods of time. It sounds like Only exactly what things. you don't want to do during a pandemic, but People need to. I learn. look at
2: those dorms, and they look a lot like cruise ships. To me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we get to the topic, Joel, did you want to give a pick of the week to the audience?
2: So I got. I have two picks. So one is uh, Zoe Keating. Uh, she's a cellist who also composes music. So I'm always looking for music that I can listen to while I work. And this has no lyrics. It's great stuff to listen to. So Zoe Keating is one. And then uh, just last night, my wife and I finished watching this nine-part television series called Mrs. America. And it's a, uh, a television series that dramatizes the women's movement and fight for and against the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. It's actually, it's just brilliant. I can't recommend it enough.
1: Where did you watch that? What, what is it on? So it's, it was
2: on effects, but we just bought the series for whatever, 20 bucks.
0: Awesome.
1: Paul, any quick recommendations?
0: You know, I, I can't recommend anything quickly. Um, but I, there's a, a recommendation I made a prior episode. I just kind of threw it out. Um, I just wanted to revisit because I didn't do it justice. So I'm going to recommend the game The Last of Us Part Two. And there's no way to talk about it without spoiling it. So I won't go into to too much detail. It is basically about how the cycles of violence perpetuate themselves. It takes place in uh, on, on planet Earth where most of the population has been decimated by a terrible infection. And it's about various factions who feel strongly about things fighting each other. And the people who are sort of reckoning with um, past actions, and it is just one of the best acted, one of the most visually beautiful things that I've looked at. That it has a tale full of sort of um, moral nuance that you just don't typically see with video games. And Like it's just, it's 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 a masterpiece. And so I, I think I, the last time I said, yeah, I'm playing this thing, and it's fine. Um, so if you if you're into this kind of thing and you want to be depressed by a bleak landscape um, while still kind of admiring it at the same time, I would recommend The Last of Us Part Two.
2: Have you finished it? I have. Yeah, my my son finished it. He was blown away.
0: It's yeah. I, I can't. I wish. So I tell your son to call me. I need someone to talk about it with, but I don't <laughs> want to ruin it for anyone. So um, we'll connect after this.
1: <laughs> I need to start playing so I can be a better friend to you, Paul. I probably should start playing video <laughs> games. My or kids would more love friends. It. I mean, either <laughs> or. Let's get to a case from Cashlack. So Kyle Bean is excited to start intern year at Cashlack Memorial on the inpatient nephrology service. And there's a number of exciting new consults this morning. All are requests to help with acute kidney injury uh, or AKI. And so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, Kyle is excited to learn whatever he can about the diagnosis and management of AKI. And before bedside rounds, Dr. Suzanne Summers. Is this Susan Summers or Suzanne Summers, uh, Cyrus? I want to make sure I'm doing this justice.
0: No, it's whatever you want it to be, Matt. Okay. It's whatever you want it to I'm be. I'm gonna
1: make it Suzanne.
0: Uh, I had be- a real hard. Like I'm drawing, like the wheels are spinning. I'm trying to like, how do I get to Thighmaster to kidney? Like I just I could not make it work to save my life. But... Rabdo. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thank you.
1: Before bedside rounds, Dr. Suzanne Summers, who popularized the Thighmaster, uh is the attending nephrologist. And ask Kyle how is AKI defined, and how might you approach a patient with AKI? He stammers and asks himself, "How would Dr. Toff, his favorite Med Twitter presence, answer this question?" Fortunately, we have with us at Kidney Boy himself. So, Dr. Toff, Joel, what would you, how would you answer this?
2: Right. So, the definition of AKI has been something that's been, you know, it's it, it's kind of like the definition of pornography. It's hard to define, but you know it when you see it, <laughs> right? And so, you know, it, 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 essentially, it's just a a sudden drop in GFR. And uh, and this is not a great operational definition if you're doing a study. And so there's been a lot of movement in the last 20 years to really formalize the definition. And right now, uh, we have, a, 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 as of 2012, uh, the KDGO, which is Kidney Disease International mm-hmm. Guideline Organization, Uh, has come up with uh, definitions where they've staged uh, kidney injury from stage one through stage three. Uh, They're based on changes in serum creatinine and changes in urine output. That said, we could go through those stages, but they're really not useful clinically. Those are useful if you're going to do a large study and you want to get a homogenous group of people with certain degrees of renal failure. When we're talking about uh, patients that we're seeing on on the wards, we're just talking about there's a sudden decrease in kidney function, and that'll be evidenced as a rise in serum creatinine or a drop in urine output or both.
1: And and usually the urine output thing, unless they have a Foley, you're probably not going to know how many ml per kg per minute they have. So if they're in the ICU, you might have that information. Usually, it's going to happen when maybe the, the nurse is paying attention to it. They're like, "This patient hasn't urinated for like the whole shift," and then you're like, "Uh oh, something's going on." So that I'm just I'm just adding my practical. No, know. and
2: and I think that's that's absolutely uh, absolutely true, and it's actually super important because you know the urine output really becomes into focus in the ICU when you'll get these conflicting signals. You know, you in a patient who. Is getting massive fluid resuscitation because they're a trauma patient or they're a patient, a routine surgery patient. You take your pick, <laughs> you know. But <laughs> and if they're anuric, they can get they can be so positive, you know, four liters, eight liters positive, that it can dilute out the serum creatinine. And you'll see a patient completely anuric and the serum creatinine is not going up. And it's important to recognize no urine equals no GFR, and you can't be reassured by that stable creatinine. But yeah more likely than not if you're on the wards if you're not in the ICU the lack of urine output is a lack of documentation of urine output
1: Joel this is this is slightly getting going to get into the weeds but in a similar idea if someone is coming into the hospital in heart failure sometimes is do you get a similar dilution like if they're in cardiorenal syndrome do you get a similar dilution of the creatinine do you buy that and then you start to diuresum you might it starts to go up, but stabilizes at, at a point?
2: Um, you know, I think the cardiorenal patients, I think pretty reliably raise their creatinine. I'm not aware that, that they don't. The important thing to recognize in cardiorenal syndrome though, is that we shouldn't you shouldn't use the creatinine as the guide to your diuresis, that you need to look at the patient and you need to decongest them. Even if it means their creatinine will go up to some degree, we know from uh, follow-up studies that if you send somebody home who still has persistent volume, but their creatinine is stable, they don't do as well as patients that you get them completely decongested and accept some rise in serum creatinine. Okay. The, you got you to gotta prioritize uh, uvolemia over normal creatinine.
1: Okay. So my question, I, I don't want to confuse the audience. So the, the thing that Joel was talking about in the ICU where the patient's getting tons of fluid not making any urine, that's where the creatinine gets diluted. Cardiorenal syndrome, not quite the same thing.
2: Not, not in my experience, no. All right.
0: But this seems like a great place to transition into just sort of broadly, is sort of how do you actually categorize or sort of frame causes of acute kidney injury? Do you have sort of a schema that you work from?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I don't, you know, this is the same thing you were taught in medical school. You were taught it, and it's it's, it's the one example where they got it right, that the <laughs> pre-renal post-renal and intra-renal is a great way to think about things, right? So the pre-renal are patients where there's just not enough perfusion or blood flow to the kidney. Most of the time, that's going to be due to volume deficiency, either nausea, vomiting, decreased PO intake, bleeding, um, uh, shock of any cause, or uh, uh, heart failure, where the patient is volume overloaded, but they don't get good perfusion to the kidneys, or they have a lot of venous congestion, preventing good flow through the kidneys. We call those all pre-renal azotemia. And then we have the post-renal causes. These are obstruction. So this is going to be prostatism in men, cervical cancer in women, uh, uh, kidney stone in the ureter if they got a single kidney, uh, you know, uh, take your pick of other causes of Retroperitoneal
1: fibrosis, which we famously missed on on a quiz show way back when, Paul. A mystery case, remember, with Reza.
0: No, I blacked out during much of that. <laughs> <laughs> Boy,
2: that's a, that's kind of, that's kind of a dirty trick. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, but absolutely. Right. And the tough one about retroperitoneal fibrosis is it usually doesn't present with hydro, that the fibrosis is usually so tight that you can ultrasound them and you won't pick it up.
0: Uh, that's just infuriating.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: Right. That's not fair. Come on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and, and the great, the great thing by, you know, and then between those two extremes between pre-renal and post-renal, you've got the intra-renal causes. Primarily that's going to be acute tubular necrosis, but it can be, you know, uh, uh, drug reactions, vancomycin or aminoglycoside toxicity. It could be the glomerulonephritis. It could be the vasculitises, the vasculitis a lot of the complex stuff that really attacks the kidney is going to be in the middle. And why I love this schema is if you kind of take a look at patients that present to the hospital with acute kidney injury, so their presenting complaint is AKI. Somewhere between seventy and ninety percent of them are going to be either pre- or post-renal. So that means a bag of LR and a Foley catheter fixes seventy to ninety percent of these people with acute kidney injury, and you're, you're the hero, right? <laughs> you don't need a, you don't need a nephrology consult. You get this done. You get the nephrology consult just to gloat, right? Just to say. hey- <laughs> Hey, I got this. what I did. Tough, you don't I don't need you. I got this thing taken care of. is coming down, and uh, and and then that just leaves the the middle the middle part. You know, and somewhere and depending on you know which ep, uh, study you're looking at, it's going to be somewhere between ten and thirty percent of them will be intrarenal. But again, the mo- most of those. Mass majority of those will be what we call a, a, a acute tubular necrosis, which is a, a, a sudden drop in the blood flow to the kidney. It causes ischemia to the tubules, and the kidney shuts down for two days, four days, six weeks. Take your pick. Some some range of time. Most of them are going to be somewhere between four days and a week. And there's no therapy for that. Make, make sure they don't get further hypotension. Don't let them get further harmed. Avoid additional nephrotoxins, right? Don't give them an amino glycoside. We try to stop the ACE inhibitors. We don't have good data that that helps, but it's what we all do. Uh, You know, avoid uh, uh, contrast is something that we always recommend people do. Uh, Certainly avoid hypotension, avoid significant hypertension, and they'll get better on their own. So between LR Foley catheter, and the tincture of time, you really have something around 90% of these things taken care of, maybe even more, maybe it's 95%. And you're really just left with just a sliver of diagnoses that are left where you actually need to be active and really drill down, figure out what's going on to fix these patients.
1: Joel, you tweeted this out, but just to plug, we already mentioned our friend Reza, the, the CP solvers who have their own podcast, they make these great schemas. And they have one for intrarenal AKI. That's a very nice visual representation of this. So we can we can. Well, and it's not
2: it's not only the visual representation. I think they have a chief resident who walks through the whole schema, and he just does a brilliant job of going through it. It really is a a top notch uh, description of kidney uh, kidney injury. But the important thing to recognize is it's it's about twenty diagnoses and. They're, they represent 1% of the full spectrum of AKI. The vast majority of them are real easy.
1: Yes. So interns, be reassured. You Foley catheter, some fluids, and probably it's AT. If that doesn't work, it's probably ATN, and it'll, it'll probably get better as long as you don't uh, do anything too stupid, make any sudden movements. <laughs> Joel, I wanted to ask... The diagnosis. So we've talked about we've talked about how to categorize it. A, a bit of the differential diagnosis here. I wanted to ask about the the lab values. You mentioned the creatinine earlier, and is that still the best way? Uh, um, are there are there new serum marker biomarkers that you think will ever be prime time? I know I, I've been hearing about them for years now.
2: Yeah, it, you know, uh, better biomarkers for kidney function are perpetually five years away, and. <laughs> Okay. And All right. That's what I just, thought 5 years ago. Yeah, that's right. And that's what I thought 20 years ago. <laughs> and we're just it 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 just hasn't happened yet and I, you know, they're starting to emerge, but I think right now you're in output and creatine do the job pretty well. And until somebody shows that we can really do a better job with something else, I think this is what we're going to be using.
1: Okay. I can deal with that. So Joel, would you when you first notice that somebody has an acute kidney injury, either because of low urine output or an elevated serum creatinine, what else are you paying attention to with the labs? Can you walk
2: us through that? Right. So the important thing is when you make that diagnosis of acute kidney injury, recognize that that's just the beginning. You haven't really fully characterized what's going on. In order to characterize it, the very next step you want to categorize it into, are they oliguric, anuric or non-oliguric. So you want to take a look at that 24-hour urine output because this is going to have huge prognostic indications on what we're going to be doing next. And so if they're anuric, that is going to accelerate everything. People get into a lot of trouble if they're not making any urine. And if they're non-oliguric, that's going to relax you a little bit. You're going to get a little bit more time and it's a little bit more comfortable. So you want to categorize it as oliguric or non-oliguric acute kidney injury. And then you want to say what it's due to right? You want to take a look at, go through the patient's chart, talk to the patient, look at all the labs. Is this a patient who had a prolonged hypotension? Is this a patient who has severe heart failure? And this might be a cardiorenal syndrome. Is this a patient uh, who's received uh, vancomycin or was taking uh, NSAIDs? And, and try to establish what the etiology is. And then you want to go through and you want to make sure there's no life-threatening uh, electrolyte abnormalities that are secondary to the acute kidney injury. Make sure that potassium's okay. Make sure their acid base status is reasonable. These are kind of the, the first steps. These are what you uh <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh a curbsider's classic. I love to folks. <laughs> <laughs> Clocky's back, everybody. The, the clock
2: is back. <laughs> no, our, it's gonna be nine gone. of them. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I thought I turned the thing off. I'm gonna So after you've established that they have acute kidney injury what the etiology is, what their urine output status is. You want to take a look at the electrolytes. You want to look for immediate life-threatening injury, uh, potential diseases like hyperkalemia, like profound acidosis, like significant hypocalcemia. All those are part of the acute kidney injury syndrome. So you want to address those because those are going to things that your attending is going to want to know about and need to address on rounds.
0: So let's let's go to a case and let's talk about probably um just a prototypic Paul Williams patient, the type of person I see all the time on the wards. I, Kyle and Dr. Summers, they're they're running the list. They visit their first new patient. The first patient they see is a twenty three year old athlete. He is in the midst of a two times a day. Wait, what is it? Two a days? Cyrus, help me out here. That sounds like something where you exercise or something. Yeah, two days, it's like you work out in the morning and then you work out in the afternoon. It's you know, it is what it is. Yeah, and it sounds awful. So he's doing two a days. Um <laughs> And, and someone um, checked his renal function and he came in with doubling of his serum creatinine and the primary team was hoping for some help working up his acute kidney injury. And so for this 23 year old athlete who is, who's working out twice a day, like some sort of crazy person um, with this elevation in creatinine, I guess, what are the etiologies we should consider and where should we, where should we start? So let's, let's help out Kyle.
2: Right. So, you know, we can just kind of It's unlikely to be prostatism in the 23-year-old athlete, okay? (laughs) So I think obstruction seems less likely, but this is a kind of a classic uh, story of a patient who's working out a lot. You worry about rhabdomyolysis. You also worry about if it's the beginning of the season, they may be taking a lot of NSAIDs to deal with kind of just routine injuries of starting to work out. So you'd want to look for... So and and then lastly, uh, he's working out twice a day in the middle of the summer, very hot, and so you're going to think about prerenal azotemia, and so when you, cut, when you approach this patient, you're going to say, "Well, you know, could this be uh, NSAIDs?" And so the the best test for this is to talk to the patient and ask them if they're taking any NSAIDs, right? And so did you do that, Paul?
0: Well, this isn't about me, Joel. This is about <laughs> Kyle. Of course, of course, I did that. I mean, for my typical 23 year olds who're working out twice a day, that's the question I ask first. Um, and Kyle asked, and it turns out the patient is actually taking NSAIDs. Maybe even on a daily basis, he's a little bit sort of achy. So now what do we do with that information?
2: Right. And so again, it, 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 it's, a, it's a question of degree, but the way that the NSAIDs work is they block prostaglandins and prostaglandins are needed when you get a bit volume depleted. You become, your kidney becomes dependent on prostaglandins to maintain perfusion of the kidney. And so you block those, so you get volume depleted, then you block the prostaglandins that are the lifesaver for the kidney at this point, and you can drop the renal blood flow. And, uh, induce an acute tubular necrosis through, through the, through the insets. Uh, but an important corollary is that they kind of have to be volume depleted to get there. Okay, and so you know the other thing, the other disease that's on that, that on that differential that you'll want to know about is going to be the rhabdomyolysis. Could this be someone who's over exercising and developing rhabdo? There was actually a couple of kids from I think it was Iowa a couple of years ago that ended up with dialysis dependent AKI from rhabdo uh, in the preseason football.
1: Joel, and so, I, go I was going to ask a prognosis for for AKI. When 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 patients are saying oh, okay, so let's say their creatinine's three or something like that, what do you tell patients when they ask you? I'm, I'm sure it depends on the patient, but for someone like this young 23 year old athlete, the chances of recovering from AKI versus somebody you mentioned some of these some of these players were on dialysis, for someone that has an AKI, a young healthy person needs a couple sessions of dialysis. Is that what are the chances that person's going to be on lifelong?
2: Oh, um, if they did not have pre-existing kidney disease, so these patients had normal kidney function, no CKD beforehand, prognosis is excellent that they'll get off dialysis Recover kidney function nearly to baseline or, or to baseline. Um, and, and they'll do well. If they have a significant kidney disease, if they have, for example, stage four CKD, then the story is much, much different. And they have a much worse prognosis for getting off of dialysis and staying off of dialysis. You oftentimes see a patient with stage four get off CK, get off dialysis if they had dialysis event and AKI, but more than likely within a year, they will be back on dialysis and not be able to get off. Um, It seems to be a real accelerant in that regard. Uh, But patients with normal renal function, prognosis is excellent that they should recover their renal function.
1: Dare we talk about the volume status exam a little bit with this? Um, I I know that's probably something that new interns should be learning. Maybe, Maybe older attendings should be relearning. What, what do you put your stock in when you're doing a volume status exam? I, I think you quoted us before a, a New England Journal study from the, maybe the 1980s where they took a bunch of like experts and they weren't too good at it.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in a situation where you have a young, otherwise healthy uh, a patient, err on the side of giving too much fluid – right? Because you're not going to get into heart failure. You're not going to get into too much trouble. You got a patient who's facing uh, potential for needing dialysis on the other side. You'd hate to need dialysis because you didn't volume resuscitate them enough. Um, and, I, and most of these patients will tolerate the fluid. So I would, and I would be pretty aggressive with giving the fluid, especially if the, you know, I, we haven't, we haven't kind of delved into this, but if this is rhabdo, you know, pretty much the recipe to treat rhabdo is to give a lot of fluid. You want to maintain as much renal blood flow and renal, and urine output as possible. And and rhabdo not, you know, usually can make that diagnosis at the bedside. You take a look at the urine, the rhabdo characteristically very dark, uh, almost brown colored urine. Uh, on the urinalysis, they'll have large blood on the, when they just do the dip on the heme section. But when you look in the microscope, no red cells. Classic for both uh, hemolysis and for uh, uh, rhabdomyolysis because the dipstick just detects heme. So it doesn't necessarily detect intact cells. And that's what the microscope is for. So if you get that divergence where it's blood on the dip and n- no blood on the microscopic exam, that should lead to to rhabdo or hemolysis as the etiology. Both of them can cause acute kidney injury. And both of them, you want to give them a lot of fluid.
1: Do you have any- so It
0: sounds like you're relying- Oh, sorry, go ahead,
1: Matt. I was just going to ask a formula. Do you have any specific formula for- When you say a lot of fluid, can you be a a little specific? Is it like four liters? Are you giving 250 mLs per hour, 30 mLs per kg per minute? You know,
2: young, healthy person, 200 cc's an hour. Got it. LR.
0: Okay. Sorry, Paul. No, I was just going to go back to to your question. It sounds like, Joel, you're relying much more on the the patient history and, and maybe some studies that we'll talk about than sort of chasing down axillary sweat you're not sticking your fingers in any armpits and you're not looking for black tongue. I furrow. never
2: miss an opportunity to put my fingers in somebody's armpit. I mean, that's just sure. part of the joy of the job. Of course. I'm a
0: nephrologist. I have to do this. You understand them. Well, let's talk so let's talk about a case like
1: this where you, you have a a young person, they're 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 clearly they've they have risk for volume depletion, plus they've been taking NSAIDs. Is this is this someone do you send urine lights on all comers? I know People people pull out their little pocket medicine book or now they probably look on up to date or whatever they're using and they and they just order all these labs and urine studies for all comers with AKI, but you told us earlier that seventy to ninety percent of the time you can just fix this with fluids. Do you think it's worth sending urine lights on all these folks?
2: Well, I think I think you wanna you wanna take a look at what you're thinking about on their differential. Mm-hmm. Here, our differential is going to be is rhabdo on one side and prerenal azotemia on the other side, and the question is, does a fractional excretion of sodium differentiate between those two diagnoses? Mm-hmm. And the important thing about, or one of the things about rhabdo is it's one of the causes of intrarenal AKI that presents with a low fractional excretional sodium. So this is going to, you know, this is one where it's kind of confusing. It shouldn't, you know, the intrarenal causes are supposed to have a high phena. This one doesn't. And so here, uh, if this is our differential, which I'm comfortable with, uh, fractional of sodium makes no sense, and it's just going to cloud the picture because it's going to be low uh, right. with either of our two leading diagnoses.
1: So you look for um, the positive dip, and then yeah. and then the microscopy.
2: And 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 in terms of ruling out prerenal azotemia, response to fluids. Right, you're going to give this guy a couple of liters. Probably have three or four liters by the time he reaches the floor. Get a repeat cranium. Is it getting better? or Getting worse? Right. I mean that's you know that's the great thing about you know, there's no doubt that it's faster to give a patient a liter of fluid than it is to order the urine lights, get the urine lights back, and run it through a calculator.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think it it's just much so much more practical to, to give the fluids. Do you do you look at things like if you are just getting a plain old urinalysis with microscopy? You look at this. Spe- do you do you find the specific gravity to be helpful? Do you find highland casts in the urine? And how much of that do you think is is helpful?
2: Right, so you know, when I approach a patient, I'm, I love to get as much information as possible. I'm not going to ignore urine lights that they've been drawn. I just don't think they'd be particularly helpful here. The urine analysis is almost always available by the time I see the patient, and I get as much information from that as possible. Like if there are highland casts, that's a sign of acidic urine. It's a sign of concentrated urine. You know, can it be a normal finding? Absolutely. But when you see a bunch of highland cast and somebody that you're already worried about them being somewhat dry volume depleted it just fits with the picture same thing with urine specific gravity right if you had this picture and the urine specific gravity was 10 10 you're like boy that doesn't make sense we're really expecting that to, urine to be much more concentrated 10 20 10 30 that 10 10 makes me think wow maybe this patient has already been resuscitated maybe this patient actually wasn't volume depleted and really we're dealing with something more complex like an acute tubular necrosis
1: so with a patient like this, let's say the creatinine is 1.8. Can can you send this person home? You have them in the ER, you give them a couple liters of fluid. Is it is it too soon to check in like like four to six hours and send them home if it's getting better? Right. I think in this
2: case, you know, the, the, the characteristic, uh, the safest diagnosis is going to be prerenal renal azotemia. Patient can tolerate fluids. And so you'd want to confirm that diagnosis before sending them home. And the best way to confirm that diagnosis is response to therapy. And so I'd give them a couple of liters, three or four liters, recheck the creatinine. If the creatinine's not getting better, I'm not sure you know exactly what your diagnosis is. And I think yeah. it would be, I think you shouldn't send them home until you know why a formerly healthy patient has now got a loss of roughly half their renal function.
1: Okay. And as long as they're having urine output, even though you're giving them all this fluid, you worry about this dilution of the creatinine that you had mentioned before. Like if they have if they have no urine output, I imagine you would. But if they if they're making a lot of urine, you can you can assume it's a real drop in the creatinine. Yeah. Okay. So is there? So I think this case. I'm not sure that there's more to this case, Paul. Do you have any other questions? I think we can probably go on to the next one. Yeah.
0: I mean, I'm not sure if this is the case to give our patient rhabdo or not, but I I did have a specific question about that. Like, say if we actually have a diagnosis of rhabdo based on sort of history and then the blood work that we find, the urine looks, you know, it looks uh, characteristic. How do you know when you're done? I feel like that's something we come up against all the time. Is it sort of, when is it safe to discharge? Um, How do you know that you've actually gotten them to a place where they're okay to sort of transition to oral fluids? Like what sort of actual, do you have anything that you're sort of using as a metric to measure how to sort of transition and when to get them out of the
2: hospital? So I've looked into this and I don't think the literature helps answer this question, right? Like this is, and I think it's a, it's a totally relevant and super important clinical question, but I pay a lot of attention to the natural history of rhabdo because I've had the same question. And what I've noticed is once their creatinine starts going down, it never turns around. And so my sense is I, I give them fluid. I watch the CPK once their creatinine has peaked and started coming down. I feel very comfortable about transitioning him to orals and getting them out of the hospital. Especially, and again, all the caveats, do you have a responsible person? Are they going to come back if they get sick? All those sorts of things. But I just don't see a secondary, oh, the CPK is still elevated. It's been coming down. The creatinine has been coming down. But now all of a sudden they got AKI late. I've never seen that. If they get AKI, they have it right when they hit the door. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes
1: when you get the person with with – I've seen the patient with CK 200,000 and they don't have AKI and right. I feel compelled to watch them until it at least cuts in half once or twice, you know, down to like, it goes to 50, then 20 or hundred, then 50. And then I, I'm, st- I'm comfortable it's on its way down and they're, they're taking in food and drink. And that usually takes 24 or 36 hours, but I, I don't know, maybe you can't yeah. send those. But if it's 200,000,
2: I mean, to get it down to below 20,000, that may be a week. Yeah, right? like it really can take a while for right. if it's that high. And I've seen right, and that is the most remarkable when you see these people that have six-digit CPKS and that no AKI. You're like, I mean, it's it, to me, it's it, it's kind of flabbergasting, right? Yeah, right,
0: yeah.
1: And then sometimes those people, I think, because most of us uh, that do hospital medicine aren't exactly sure what to do with that, and we don't usually consult nephrology for these folks because if if they don't have a kidney injury, so we're just. We, we keep them until the, until the, whatever our arbitrary cutoff is where we're right. comfortable. Right, whatever,
2: whatever, your, whatever your line in the sand is. But I, I, honestly, I think if they didn't develop AKI, they're not going to develop, develop it late.
1: That's good to know. I All think right.
2: the, 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 pre, the volume deficiency is a huge part of precipitating the actual uh, syndrome of, of rhabdomyolysis with kidney failure, and that if they're vo- well hydrated when they get that rhabdo, they do fine, remarkably so.
1: Paul, did you want to read the next
0: case? Sure. So let's, let's move on to our next AKI patient. They are in the ICU. Uh, they've been admitted for septic shock. They are intubated and mechanically ventilated, so it's, it's good to have both usually. Um, <laughs> current medications, I mean, there are exceptions, I guess. Current medications include vancomycin, piperacillin, tazobactam, and propofol with fentanyl PRN. They were on vasopressors, but they've been off for 48 hours now. Their serum creatinine six months prior to admission was one, and their creatinine on admission was 1.1%. But today, the reason you've been called to their bedside to evaluate them is their serum creatinine is now two point seven. So, this patient obviously markedly different than our our football player who's been working out a lot. So, how how does this history change your differential?
2: Right. So, you know, once you're in the ICU, once you have a patient who has we we have a diagnosis of septic shock, you know, nine times out of ten, this is ischemic ATN that they've got. uh, They they have an ICU associated acute tubular necrosis. by the time we get the consult, they usually you know, all the protocols call for what thirty cc's per kilo for volume resuscitation, fluid resuscitation in the first whatever hour or management of these patients with sepsis. It's pretty unusual that you're going to then come in and say, you know what, I think they need more volume. Usually, that's been taken care of long before they've been on pressors. And this patient has now off pressors, so they have been fully hemodynamically resuscitated, and I think it's unlikely that they're volume depleted. And you know, and and you know occasionally i'll see somebody who needs a, a further resuscitation but very unusual that's usually not on the differential and and likewise obstruction Really unusual. Almost all these patients have a Foley catheter. You know, is it possible? You know, you mentioned a retroperitoneal fibrosis. Yeah, those things exist. You could have a big bulky tumor in there. You could have, you know, there, it's possible that there could be obstruction, but it really is much less likely. And your pre-test probability of the moment you step onto the ICU that you're dealing with ATN is very, very high. That said, you know, since there's really, and there's no specific medication for ATN, I kind of feel like my job is to pick out that one in a hundred. Like the reason I'm here, since there's really no intervention for ATN is to make sure we're not missing that anchovasculitis, right? Oh, they intubated the patient. They noticed some blood when they were doing the intubation. Oh, really? Have we considered a pulmonary renal syndrome? Let's take a look at the urine, right? Like th- I think that ends up being a lot of your role as a consulting nephrologist, right? To try to pick out that one in a hundred. Otherwise, Nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, it's going to be ischemic ATN. And then, you know, the key here is let's not make the patient sicker, right? This patient's on vancomycin and piptazo. And so this is a combination that is well documented to cause increased acute kidney injury. Um, it's a weird story because piptazo alone, not really nephrotoxic. It's only supposed to be nephrotoxic when it's combined with vancomycin. And vancomycin itself, uh, its nephrotoxicity is kind of not all that it's been cracked up to be. Uh, and a lot of this is just kind of the natural, hi- or not the natural history, but the history of vancomycin since its discovery, that when it was first produced, it was just difficult to purify it. And there was a lot of contaminants in vancomycin. And as it's gotten more and more pure, the risk of AKI from this drug has gone down and down and down. But it's not gone to not gone to zero. And uh, there definitely is increased uh, risk of AKI with vancomycin. But compared to like other toxins like amphotericin or uh, the aminoglycosides, it's not nearly as common or as toxic as those other drugs, but it's there. So this would be a situation where you'd want to monitor levels, make sure there, they're not too high. Talk to ID. Is there an alternative drug that we can use?
1: Does it seem, even if you keep someone in what we consider the therapeutic range, 10 to 20, the vanc trough, that they can still develop an AKI? Or does it seem to correlate with the people that you you check a level, random level, it's like 45?
2: Okay. So both of those are true, right? So clearly, you know, clearly... Uh, the higher the level, the more the toxicity. And some of that is chicken and the egg type of stuff, right? Because what's associated with increased levels, well, decreased renal function. And So if you have somebody who's got evolving AKI where their creatinine is going from one to two to three, and you're giving them standard doses of vancomycin, and you're not paying close enough attention, all of a sudden that patient's going to get a toxic level. It's hard to blame the AKI on the vancomycin. It seems to be a result of the AKI rather than a cause of the AKI. Um, And untying that knot actually is pretty difficult. That said, I'm pretty convinced if you kind of look at all the risk factors for vancomycin toxicity, it does seem to be associated with more, giving more vancomycin. We see more AKI with the longer case, the longer duration of treatment with the higher doses of treatment with the higher trough levels. So yeah, we want to keep those trough levels down, but they're not out of the woods. We can have patients that have maintained good trough levels below 15 the whole time, uh, and they can still develop acute kidney injury. Oftentimes, you get a kind of an acute interstitial nephritis picture, and that's not so dose dependent, just idiopathic patients sometimes get a reaction to the drug.
1: And and we think that's the main mechanism that is vancomycin just a particularly higher risk factor for AIN, and that's that's the cause of the AKI for with vanco,
2: or we just don't know? It's, it's a lot of don't know, because the reality is uh, a lot of the patients that are given vancomycin, we're just not doing kidney biopsies on. And so we have to kind of make up what's the cause or what's the mechanism. And it's difficult to do. So in some cases, you know, when we do have biopsies, we do see some interstitial nephritis. We also see some vancomycin casts develop in the tubules, which is wild. That's the cause of the toxicity. And then we feel that there's another group where it's just kind of traditional nephrotoxicity where not a lot of pathological findings besides some, uh, uh, damage to the proximal tubule cells. Um, so you you can get all three flavors of AKI from vancomycin. It's a little bit difficult to assess. What might be the relative frequency, but it's not all AIN.
1: We're we're talking about AIN, acute interstitial nephritis. I feel that all I've ever learned about that is that I, I know certain drugs can make it happen. I, I remember PPIs for some reason, NSAIDs, and that urinaseinophils and a rash. If that's if if those are there, then then wow, maybe you got a slam dunk diagnosis. But those are almost never there. And then it's just this specter, and I'm just thinking, oh, I guess it could be AIN, and I just write that in my notes. But I think there's maybe, maybe even one time where we, we were pretty sure this person had AIN. But for a patient like this in the ICU, they've had contrast, they've had vancomycin, they've had hypotension, they've had sepsis. Like It, it seems very hard to make this diagnosis. Tell us, tell us you're better at it. Tell us you have an easy way.
2: No, I think, I think you, I think you've nailed the absolute issues is that you, you have so many other more usual suspects to point to for the cause of the acute kidney injury in an ICU patient with sepsis, with hypotension, with pressors, with contrast, with vancomycin. Like, yeah, you're probably not going to get to AIN in this, di- in this patient. Where we get the diagnosis of AIN is the patient who has none of those usual suspects that you kind of go through your whole, Evaluation of the patient, you're like, you know what? I don't see anything that might be causing the acute kidney injury. Maybe we should consider AIN in that situation. Uh, comment, first of all, on the urine eosinophils. They are more common in ATN than in AIN. And so they're considered a low yield test and really should not be ordered. Okay. That even, you know, it's not even a situation where they're very specific but not sensitive or very sensitive, but not specific. They're neither. They're lousy. Okay. Not something that we should be doing. Um what you will find- <laughs> They will find-
1: never be taken off board questions. Though. Never, they will- <laughs> that's right.
2: Forever, we will be making bad internists through our board exams, right? That, that should be their motto. Worse internists <laughs> through board exams. <laughs> but uh, what we do reliably find, you reliably find white cells and red cells in the urine when you have AIN. and uh, And then you nailed it. The important drugs are going to be the PPIs the uh, antibiotics and the NSAIDs are all classic causes for this. Um, and then the, the, the classic triad of renal failure, fever and rash uh, really comes from the beta lactam uh, literature. And we, you know, if you're using beta lactams, that's going to be the syndrome you're going to see more often, but outside of that specific drug, usually it'll be kind of isolated kidney failure with this pyuria and hematuria. And then the, uh, The primary treatment there is just remove the offending agent, take your best guess at which it is, stop that drug. And if you're not sure, go get a biopsy, see if you have the disease. And then uh, there's some data uh, that steroids may speed the recovery from AIN. It's pretty thin. Uh, Usually if I've gone to the the trouble of getting a biopsy, I'm doing that because I'm thinking about doing steroids. So
0: Matt, and I know we have maybe a different case to talk about this, but Matt sort of snuck in the patients, you know, gotten CT scans with contrast and then you repeated it back. And I got all kinds of excited, like, here we go. And then <laughs> the guys just kept talking about sort of other stuff. So I guess, you know, so for this patient, I mean, this would not be unusual. Say someone comes in with sort of undifferentiated sepsis, part of their work, they get the, the scan, they get their PAN scan with contrast. We know this patient's creatinine on emission was not terrible. It was 1.1, though we know that that's not a perfect marker for renal function. And now we have this elevated creatinine can we, should we blame the contrast? Can we blame the contrast? I feel like you probably have some thoughts on this.
2: Yes, I have some thoughts. So uh, the ideal study to figure out if contrast is toxic is a randomized controlled trial. Patients get randomized to contrast or no contrast. And this has never been done. It was attempted, but it was difficult to enroll patients and they abandoned the idea. And so what we're left with are controlled trials, but not randomized trials. And they, you know, patients come into the ER and some of them get a contrasted CT scan and some of them don't. And then we take a look at the outcomes and consistently when we do those trials, we don't see any signal at all that contrast causes acute kidney injury over and over again, different groups doing it, different, def- different ways of controlling it, propensity matching, what have you, whatever they've done, they've not been able to generate, they've not been able to show that getting contrast causes AKI. And it doesn't look like we're able to get a randomized controlled trial. So we're talking about this is the most sophisticated statistics using retrospective analysis. We can't find any hint that there's something called contrast nephropathy. Now, again, those are all venous studies. You can't randomize people to cardiac caths with or without contrast. They're all going to – with arterial <laughs> studies, they all get contrast. Um, and there's a belief that arterial contrast is worse than, um, than uh, uh, venous contrast. But it just, it, it, it really bothers me. I think it should bother a lot of people that when we, that we can't find a signal. We can't find the signal of increased acute kidney injury following contrast in these large epidemiologic studies, kind of no matter how they're done, any way you slice it. And avoiding contrast in patients with decreased kidney function, like there's a cost there. It's like, it's a hard cost. It's hard to measure, but like, you know, not giving contrast means that you're flying blind. You don't have as good diagnostic uh, determinations. And you can, you look at these studies that look at the frequency that people are giving contrast based on serum creatinine and everybody below a creatinine of one and a half gets contrast for, you know, 60, 70, 80% of the studies. And as soon as that creatinine goes above 1.5, as soon as there's a little H next to it on the labs, contrast use falls off of the table. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at these patients, there's probably no difference in the patient's need for contrast. We're just treating them less well for fear of this contrast nephropathy and a contrast nephropathy that we can't find any evidence for in our best studies. And so it it concerns me that we're treating these patients less well. And, and my sense is if there is a contrast nephropathy, it's not nearly as common as we think it is. And we should be doing the studies we need to make the right diagnoses right? Because honestly, I've seen it over and over again. The thing that makes patients better, faster than anything else is the correct diagnosis.
0: That's a great quote. Gotten sooner rather than later, right? Yeah. And the sooner you make it, the better they do. Yes. I think
1: if the patient is like CKD four or five on the verge of dialysis and you know, they're coming in hypotensive, and you're like thinking, do I really need this contrast scan? That's probably different than the person who's stable creatinine 1.6, and you're worried they have a PE, and you want to know, you know, do I start this person on anticoagulation? It it just seems like there is a, there, there's probably, it's my impression from what you're saying is that there's probably more patients where we should pull the trigger on the contrast study if we think they need it. Then who we should really just totally avoid contrast because the risk is just too high, but th- that's that's my interpretation of this. Like if someone's on the v- unless someone's on the verge of dialysis or they're already in the middle of like a, just a severe AKI
2: and you don't want to you don't want to add anything to the mix. But it, here's what I would say: is patients with a severe AKI, whether they need dialysis or not, are in mortal danger. I mean, severe AKI in the di- in the in the ICU is a disease where lots of patients are not going to make it out of there alive. And if you think you might need contrast to save their life, by all means, give them the contrast. Right? Like, I, I, I mean, if, you know, when you've got that blade up, that you're up against that, and we and we've all seen these patients. I think it's the wrong thing to do to avoid contrast in that situation. What I would turn that around is if that same patient, you know, had a, a, a gram positive cocci in the blood. Would you give them vancomycin? I mean, they're they're close to dialysis. You would yeah. give vancomycin without even thinking about it. Yeah, right. It would you wouldn't even hesitate, and you're like, well, if they get into AKI, we'll deal with that later. We'll call we'll call Toff, yeah, and, uh, and he'll bail us out. And 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 I think that's kind of what we should be doing for contrast. If you need the drug, if you need the diagnostic procedure, get the diagnostic procedure, and we'll deal with the the AKI if it happens later. But uh, we need to we need to make correct diagnoses on these patients.
1: Since we're on the topic of, I, I know this does not cause acute kidney injury, but can you just speak to gadolinium? It seems like for a while they were, they were not giving gadolinium studies to patients with CKD4 or below. And now, at least at cash it seems like people aren't so afraid of that anymore. And they, they, they seem to think maybe the newer agents or whatever we're using at cash is not really the risk for this nephrogenic systemic fibrosis that, that we all worried about. Yeah. So
2: we had a number of those cases at my, at the hospital that I work at right now. And they were, some of them were my patients. And it was, uh, it's a horrible disease. Right. This NSF is, it's, it's horrible. And all the patients died except for one that I knew. And it, I mean, it was really bad. I personally am pretty terrified of it. Um, And there was a very, I think, a, a really important, meta-analysis that came out, I think came out in December of this year. It was in JAMA Internal Medicine. And it was a massive study. I think it was 4,931 patients with CKD stage 4, 5, and dialysis that were given these newer agents and not one of them developed NSF. Oh, for 5,000. Wow. And I think that was very reassuring. Um I'm convinced that if they are not on dialysis and you're using these newer agents you're going to be fine. I'm not entirely convinced in dialysis patients that it's completely safe that's where I am but I think I think you can point to they did it five thousand times and there wasn't one case pretty reassuring
1: for the listeners they can talk to their local nephrologist and their local radiologist and make a make a uh, shared decision about about whether or not it's it's safe for the patient
2: that and, and I want to emphasize that there are people that believe that there are additional consequences to gadolinium besides this NSF, this this uh, systemic sclero- systemic fibrosis uh, condition um, that may not that, that were not that was not assessed with this. this was very specifically looking for this one complication, and so something to, something to keep in mind.
0: So let's so let's let's stick with our ICU patient because we haven't made them complicated enough. And as we're working them up, their their creatinine is sort of steadily worsening, and the, the ICU team gets more and more alarmed, and the interns become a little bit more excited and start asking more and more about initiating urgent hemodialysis. So I, I guess as as this, this team's consulting nephrologist, when when should they be thinking about initiating hemodialysis for this patient?
2: Right. So we've actually kind of stumbled into an area of active research in nephrology. And so there was a large contingent in nephrology that felt that getting these patients on dialysis sooner in the course of AKI would result in better outcomes. And there was a, a large uh, multi-site study called uh, AKIKI that tested this hypothesis. And it's one of a number of studies. And so far, the score is all of them have been negative except for one called Elaine. But the vast majority of studies that have looked at early dialysis have not found a benefit in outcome when you do dialysis early. And what they also found is if you did dialysis early, and then you, you know, since these patients were randomized, you could see the natural history of early versus late dialysis. And a lot of the people in the late dialysis never needed dialysis, so you had a much lower need, you know, did a use of this utilization of this resource in the late dialysis, and so since there was no improvement in outcome, that meant a lot of people in the early dialysis group were getting dialysis and they would never need it. And that weighs on you pretty heavily. We know what patients go through both just mentally having to, you know, understanding their families have to understand. Oh my God, they're now on dialysis. And, it, and in half the cases, it was completely unnecessary. Um, and so, I'm firmly in the camp of, I don't do early dialysis. I really need to be pushed by some symptom to do dialysis. And that sometimes is going to be hyperkalemia, but a lot of times in the ICU, it's going to be volume. Once you have trouble oxygenating with patients really getting volume overloaded, uh, that's, a, that's a move where I'm going to push, hey, let's start dialysis in this situation. And so that's what I'm doing. There's We're going to see probably in the next few weeks uh, additional data on this early start dialysis. So maybe I'll be speaking, sing, singing a different tune uh, pretty soon, but I, I don't think so. I think I think we're going to see consistency. The interesting thing is that large, it was a French study called the Kiki looking at early start dialysis. That study was negative. They are now running the opposite study. They're now randomizing patients to start dialysis as late as possible, right? They started early dialysis, it didn't work. Let's go the other way. Let's see if starting as late as possible is advantageous. And I'm super interested for when that study comes back.
1: Can you define, what was the difference in time between the late and the early group or between the, yeah, between the early group and then those who they tried to wait longer? Was it, are we talking within 24 to 48 hours for the early group versus like five to seven days for the
2: late? So uh, the early group essentially was, as soon as they were randomized, they were initiated on dialysis. And I think they started, I think that was stage three AKI. So that's a tripling of the serum creatinine so you think about that i mean if they have a baseline creatinine of one creatinine of three they're starting dialysis that was the early group yeah I, yeah that I, paul's reaction is my reaction right it seemed a little crazy the study the one study that was positive was the study called elaine and they started even earlier i think they started th- those patients in stage two so uh w- the people that are committed to this really think that early dialysis really helps, though the data has not been very uh, supportive of that. Okay.
1: So we have one more case, and we're, we, we've are we all agreed that we could not, without making this show three hours long, cover <laughs> glomerulonephritis and nephrotic syndrome. And I think that's going to have to be a future episode with, with the it's great- It's called a podcast, not a fellowship. Right. Right. <laughs> so we will- we will uh, if if the audience wants us to we can commit to doing an episode on that in the future but for now let's say young Kyle he's he's no longer d- doing consults in the ICU he's now uh, he's now fielding some outpatient clinic calls and he comes across a patient who's on trim sulfa. i was going to uh, say
2: that's because cashlack has an excellent nephrology teaching service, where we don't just put them in the hospital. We bring them to the clinic where they can see patients in their clinic. Yeah, It's a comprehensive global view of nephrology. (laughs) We've done an excellent job. (laughs)
0: And they recognize outpatient medicine is God's work. It's it's (laughs) all correct. Yes. Good for Kyle.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He comes across this patient. They're taking trim sulfa for prophylaxis after an organ transplant. And uh, he realizes that he thinks maybe trim sulfa affects the serum creatinine. And he's wondering if that is the cause of this patient's, let's say this patient's creatinine normally is one, now is 1.4. How, how whomped up do you get about that for a patient that's chronically on it?
2: And so, and this is, so this is an acute change. We, we had a 50% or 40% increase in the serum creatinine.
1: Let's say the last um, value we had was a couple, three months ago.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And were they on uh, trim sulfa at that first visit? Yes. Okay. So you know, and I'll tell you what, the, uh, the curious clinicians group did an excellent podcast dedicated purely to trim sulfa and its uh, effect on serum creatinine. And it's, it's a really worth a listen, but the, the, the key here is that it can, a trim sulfa can reliably increase the serum creatinine by blocking tubular secretion. Essentially serum creatinine, is not only filtered at the glomerulus, but there's some degree of secretion in the proximal tubule, and that gets blocked by trim sulfa. And when that happens, your serum creatinine will go up a little bit. So that's a reliable finding. Everybody's creatinine's is going to bump a little bit when they start trim sulfa. Additionally, it can cause classic AKI, and there's a couple of different mechanisms. One, it can cause interstitial nephritis, just like Every antibiotic can cause interstitial nephritis. It can cause, um, it can crystallize in the tubules. This is usually something we only see in high doses in patients that have pre existing chronic kidney disease, but it can crystallize in the tubules, cause an obstructive pattern, also cause AKI. Um, oh, and then the other, oh, the last important thing is it can act like a potassium sparing diuretic. It can block the epithelial sodium channel, so you can get some, some degree of hyperkalemia. Uh, with the drug also. And so uh, in this situation, I would want to get a UA and I want to take a look and see if they have white cells and red cells in the urine. If I see that, I would, that starts to alarm me that this could be interstitial nephritis or it can be the crystallization pattern. Again, the crystallization, less of an issue in standard doses, especially prophylaxis doses, which tend to be, you know, one single strength a day uh, or one double strength three times a week. They typically don't run into those types of problems, uh, but it, it would, you know, but a, a jump from 1 to 1.4 is worth a, a further workup and an evaluation. A repeat, a UA, check the creatinine in a week, see if it changes, have the patient drink a bunch of water, have some soup. And would
1: with, with trim sulfa, would you stop it in this patient? And, and what sort of bump in creatinine is within lines of what's normal for this? Is it a 0.3? Is it a... Is it a 1.5 times their their baseline, not a two or a three
2: times? So it's, you're talking about a 10 to 20 percent bump in the serum creatinine when you start the drug. So one Got to it. 1.1, one to 1.2 is what you're going to expect from the drop in uh, tubular secretion of creatinine.
1: And are, is this a drug? We were we were talking a little bit in the pre-recording. Let's say this this patient also on an ACE inhibitor. He's on trim sulfa. The creatinine has gone from one to 1.4. We don't know if that's acute kidney injury or chronic how are you handling these drugs and anything else you would tell this person to stop if if anything
2: so I think with just the amount of data that we have right here I wouldn't get super excited about that I check the UA I'd get a repeat in a week have the patient drink some more water have some more soup try to make sure their volume resuscitated uh, I think if you start you know stopping all these medications stop your diuretic and stop your aCE inhibitor for these uh, kind of, you know, change it, mild changes in serum creatinine, you're going to get patients paranoid about their own medications. I want to make sure something is real before I start putting the brakes on all these pills. Now, if you have them come back a week later, now the creatinine is 2.2. Okay, now stop your ACE inhibitor, stop your diuretics, uh, make sure you're off your NSAIDs uh, and let's get a repeat UA and let's get it, maybe consider an ultrasound at that point and let's figure what's going on. Figure out what's going on.
1: So you mentioned the ultrasound. Paul, th- I think this is your opening here. <laughs> what I-
0: so I, I just wanted to confirm, I think what we already know, but it's always nice to hear um, a question that, you know, the answer to confirmed out loud. So mm-hmm. for patients who, who have acute kidney injury, they should absolutely all be getting renal ultrasounds probably as quickly as possible. Is that correct, Joel?
2: So uh, Tony Brew, I think this was actually one of his targets for things we do for no reason. I'm pretty sure kidney ultrasounds there. Um, what are we looking for in the kidney ultrasound? Primarily, we're looking for obstruction and hydronephrosis. And can we get a good idea with that with a bladder scan, maybe an in and out catheter? Absolutely. Usually we can take care of that. I personally like to get ultrasounds on patients with real AKI. I don't ever want to miss an obstruction, um, but I think That's rarely the diagnosis. And if you could probably get by, like I said, with the bladder scan, with an in and out catheter, uh, work them up, see if you guys, if it it responds to those things. If it doesn't, maybe as a kind of a second line therapy, you can go in or second line diagnostic if things are still confusing. Check a a kidney ultrasound at that point. Though, quite honestly, after you've done those things, a low yield test will become even lower yield. Yeah, and I would, and I, and I, and I want to just like I would describe the kidney ultrasound as a low yield diagnostic in the midst of AKI.
1: I think we, Joel, we had gone back and forth about this. It was, I think, it was neph madness, maybe two two years ago. And I, I, I like, I like the tack that you take that even if you're not going to get the full renal ultrasound, just make sure you you don't miss the fact that the patient might be obstructed. So. Like you said, the in and out cath, the bladder scan, ask them questions in the history just to to see what is your suspicion that this person might have an obstruction and be so it's not a totally worthless thought exercise to do. You should definitely think through it, but you don't have to like, what, what kills me is I'll be like rounding and like my patients off the floor. I'm like, why is this person off the floor? And it's like, they're at their renal ultrasound. I'm like, their creatinine was two when they came in. It's one this morning. Why do we still need this test? You know what, <laughs> what I mean? That's, that's, that's right. the, that's when I get a little bit bent out of shape about it. But I think yeah. we are,
0: I think we are. Cause I think the numbers I'm looking at the episode notes. Now it's, that one study said it cost $45,000 of renal ultrasonography to find one case of intervenable hydronephrosis.
1: But you're going to want to find that case, Paul.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you don't want to miss that case 100% because that will cost them way more for sure.
1: <laughs> I think we've done uh, I think we've done some heroes work tonight trying to get through this. This was a, a massive script. Cyrus did a great job putting this together. We we definitely left some topics on the table, the GN nephrotic syndrome to name a few, but that could be that could be for a future episode. Joel, did you want to give the audience a couple take home points before we let you go?
2: Okay, so one of the the first things is that though when you were taking second year pathophysiology in medical school, you learned about these unique separate buckets of Pre-renal, intra and post-renal. And once you get to the wards, it's not going to be that clean. You're going to have a lot of patients. They're going to have some pre-renal azotemia and they'll have some partially reversible AKI that their cranny may go down from, you know, from a bit, you know, maybe a baseline of one. They got volume depleted. The cranny goes up to three. You give them fluid. Cranny comes down to two, but it doesn't get all the way better. Why is that? Well, in addition to the prerenal renal there was a little bit of uh, uh, acute tubular necrosis, and these things will bleed into each other. You know, you can think of the patient who's got the kidney stone, and they're vomiting, and they're taking NSAIDs, and they got pre-renal, intrarenal, and post-renal all all at the same time. Like <laughs> patients are messy. And uh, you know Hickam's dictum really does exist. Patients can have as many damn diseases as they want, and so you you just can't be you can't be Catholic about this. You just got to understand that things are gonna. People have a, a, a smear of different diseases. You need to be careful with that. <laughs> um, urine electrolytes are probably overused in um, acute uh, kidney injury, and that what you're really trying to look for is: do these patients have volume responsive? Uh, acute kidney injury. And the best way to determine if it's volume responsive is to give them volume and look for a response. The more you learn about uh, uh, urinary lights, uh, the less reliable they are, that there's a lot of conditions that uh, should not have a low urine sodium, but do and going to be and make the situation a little bit more confusing than you'd like to think that it is. Uh, and that the last thing is, you know, this is something that you need to respect acute kidney injury, but recognize that most of these patients are going to get better with a bag or two of lactated ringers, which you want to use rather than normal saline. You want to make sure they're not obstructed, so in either an cath or a Foley's catheter. And then if you think that it's intrarenal, AKI, you still don't need to panic because most of those patients are going to get better with time regardless of what you do. Don't let their blood pressure get too low. Don't get their blood, let, let their blood pressure get too high. If they're getting a bunch of diuretics, maybe you want to back off on those. Make sure go through the MAR. Remember Ketorolac is an NSAID, right? Make sure you're stopping all the NSAIDs. Uh, and uh, uh, these patients will largely get better.
1: Thank you. And I think we'll just fade that into the outro. Actually, I guess we should ask you, Joel. Do you have do you have any plugs that you wanted to give before we let you go?
2: Um so I had a, uh, a unique opportunity. Uh, I was invited to be uh, the special editor of an I- issue of a journal called the Seminars in Nephrology. And they asked me to uh, find 10 different articles on uh, social media in nephrology. And this was just an absolute delight. And we have uh, a lot of people from uh, Med Twitter that have contributed to this. There's 10 different aspects of social media medicine from Twitter to podcasts, to uh, Twitter journal clubs, to tutorials. And all of those are available at seminars of nephrology right now, and they are open access for about a month. So if you want to take a look at these, get them while they're good.
1: Okay. We will link to those in the show notes and uh, that'll be all. Thank you so much, Joel.
2: Delightful. Always a pleasure. Thank you guys.
0: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole.
1: Yummy. Sure.
0: (laughs) Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
1: And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice-changing knowledge, but to do that, we need your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Cyrus Askin, Dr. Cyrus Askin, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the Chu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado.
0: And we should mention the melodious music you're hearing in the background was composed by the great Stuart Brigham. So many thanks to him, as well as thanks to Claire Morgan of Notterley for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.
1: And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.